Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5 says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. I have a, I have a really a difficult goal this morning, but it is the goal uh, for our time in the Word this morning. It is that every one of us would leave this room believing God is bigger than when we came in. That all of us would leave with a bigger view of God than when we came in. The book of Habakkuk sets up attention for us. It takes two realities that is so difficult for us in our fallen, kind of broken, self-centered minds to bring together. The first reality is God's sovereignty, that God is big and that God is in control. There's nothing outside of his control. And the second reality is that God is good. God is good. Any you guys been in uh, church for a long, long time? You guys remember like 20 years ago where there was that thing and, you know, somebody would stand up in front of a bunch of people and they'd say, God is good. And the people would say, see, you remember this. And they'd say, all the time. Oh, isn't that amazing? It's like, it, it, we still remember that, right? That's so incredible. So, we... <laughs> Well, like anything that is a good tool that becomes incredibly uh, repetitious over time, it's like a song that gets worn out, you know, that everybody knows that song, but that song almost becomes cheesy at some point. The saying of that has almost become like, oh, that's what we did way back then. But listen, the truth behind what is being said there is so good. That is so good. I want you to think about what you're saying in that. You're saying that God is good all the time, in every circumstance. He is never not good. He's never wrong. He's never just okay. God, in every instance, is good. Now, we say that and we believe that, but I'm a little like Mel. Sometimes I have to fight. I have to fight for that because in my circumstances, there are times where I'm going, you know, I don't know. This is hard. And these two realities are here in Habakkuk too. That God is good, and that God is big, that he's sovereign, that he's in control. Let me ask you some questions about how big you view God, just for a minute. Do you see God as big enough to turn all the traffic lights green when you're late to work? Yeah? To, to help you pass the test? Is God that big? Do you believe God is big enough to provide the funds to help you fix your car? What about to heal you from cancer? Is God that big? What about to give you and your spouse that baby you have prayed for for years? Is God that big? Is God big enough to save you in your sin and reconcile you to himself? Do you believe that God is that big? And see, here's what I think for most of us in this room who are believers, who have saving faith in Jesus. We quickly read through that list and we say, I believe God is that big. But hold on just a second. I want to I I flip it for you. Do you also believe that God is big enough to turn all the traffic lights red 
when you're late for work? Is he big enough to allow you to get anxious and nervous and fail the test? He was that a lot for me, by the way. (laughs) Is he big enough, listen, to cause you to lose your job the same week that your car breaks down? Do you believe he's, listen, big enough to let your body cripple in pain from cancer? Listen, is he big enough to allow your newborn baby to die in her sleep? Is he big enough to judge you, to find you sinful, and to sentence you to hell? Do you believe God is that big? See, when we begin to see God in those terms, where we, it, 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 it's harder for us. Because then we have to bring into the question, well, is he still good? I mean, is he, is he still good then? And oftentimes we just kind of gloss over some of these things in Scripture when we see God's sovereignty, his plan in moments like this. But when it happens to us, man, it rattles us. It shakes us. It causes us to question these kinds of things. See, this is our attention this morning. The setting is Babylon is invading and will soon take captive Israel. We kind of got part one of that last week, if you were here, when Derek was preaching through Jeremiah. And we're going to go back and reference some from Jeremiah this morning as well. But I want you to see, and I want you to put yourself in their shoes. Awful things are happening to them. God's people the people who God has shown favor, the people who God has called, his people. God is at work. But do you believe it when the circumstances are incredibly difficult? Can you see it then? And so I want to frame what's really a, um, a kind of a choppy uh, organization of a sermon, if you will, to look back through this And ask you, how big do you see God? How big is he in your mind? What control does he have? And can you believe that he is at work in your life in every instance? For an eternal good, listen, that in one sense is so far beyond you. But in the other sense, therefore, is good for you. First, I want us to ask, can You believe that God is at work when you hurt. When you hurt. See, the context for the verse I just read in Habakkuk, if you go back to verse 2, Habakkuk cries out, he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Habakkuk the prophet is there. He is watching him and his people, their things, their culture be completely destroyed. The Babylonians are killing them. 
They are capturing them. They are enslaving them. And I want you to understand, they're not being nice to them as they capture them. It's brutal. It is awful. And he looks and he sees what is happening to his kids, to his friends, his family, and he hurts. He hurts. And so he questions God, much like Job questions God. He says, how long? Why, God? Why is this happening? I hurt. Do you not care? So similar to Job. And beginning in verse 5, as you go through Habakkuk, you get God's response. Let me read verse 5 to you again now in the context. God says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. But listen to God's reply. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. You wouldn't believe if told. Now I want you to realize some of the things that Israelites believe for just a moment. The Israelites have no problem believing that God called a man named Abram, moved him out of his place to a whole other land and promised him that land and said, one day all this will be yours and your descendants will be as the stars in the heavens and all nations of the world will be blessed through you, Abraham. They don't have a problem believing that God spoke to Moses in a burning bush. Any of you guys ever experienced that, a burning bush? Yeah, I haven't. That's not a normal occurrence. They don't have a problem believing that. They don't have a problem looking back and believing that this group of slaves marched out of Egypt, the greatest superpower that the world had known to that time. And they did things like walk across the Red Sea on dry ground. They don't have a problem believing that. They don't have a problem believing that God gave Moses the law a written revelation of who God is and how they should be in light of who God is. They don't have a problem with that. But now this, think about it, this, God says, you're not going to believe it if I told you. What, what's so remarkable about what's happening here? What's so different? Is it the fact that the Babylonians have risen to power so rapidly and have become so great? I don't think so is it the intensity of the judgment that is falling on israel is it the fact that god's chosen people that the israelites would actually fall to gentiles see there's a lot going on but i want to tell you what i think really is at the heart of this it is that god himself and his work would be involved in this that seems unbelievable And such an understanding of God's sovereignty, such an understanding of his work is really just beyond human understanding. Let me give you a parallel example to help set the tone for just a moment. Give yourself to the complexity of the gospel. That God would love sinners, a creation of his, so much that he would send his only son, so much that God himself would take flesh and would die, would be ridiculed, 
Understand, yes, I understand Israel's crying out in pain, but I want you to understand the most unfair thing that has ever happened in the history of the world is Jesus. Give yourself to the complexity of the gospel for just a moment. And understand that God himself would take upon death and pain so that we might have new life. Be wowed by the understanding of who God is, that God will not walk around pain, that he will not walk around suffering, that he would take it upon himself. And if he would take it upon himself for the, watch this, for the good of his glory, Know for certain that he will lead us into suffering and pain for the good of his glory too. And it is in this that Paul says, the gospel, to those who believe it, it is the hope of salvation. But to those who don't believe it, to those who don't get it, it's just foolishness. Like God would ever take death upon himself for us. That's just crazy talk. And so we see this setting. It is an amazing thing. This is why Paul quotes this very passage in Habakkuk in Acts chapter three or 13, verse 3, as he's talking about justification through faith. And Paul's point is this. This thing that you could not believe, this thing that is so much bigger than you, this thing that so stretches our understanding of what is good, is fulfilled in Jesus It all points to him. It wasn't just about you and your little nation. It wasn't just about your comfort. All this is about the glory of God that will be manifested in the revelation of God that takes flesh, that is Jesus, that is the hope of our salvation. And it all points to him. It's an amazing thought. But I want you to understand, if you are Israel in this time, in this place, man, that stinks. That's hard. I'm like, can't we do this another way without me suffering? The next thing I want to ask is, can you believe that God is at work while you wait? While you wait. Another passage that is the same time as what we're reading here in Habakkuk comes in Jeremiah. And it's one of the most famous passages, I think, probably today. If I were to ask this room, what is your favorite passage? I think it is without question that some of you would say, Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 11. And it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. See, that sounds so encouraging, doesn't it? And I think that's why we like to say, Man, that's my verse. That's it. I'm right there. That's mine, yo. Plans for wealth and prosperity. Bring it, right? That's so good. I'm like, I love that. I, I probably knew that verse for like, I don't know, 20 years before I ever really studied the Bible enough to know the context that that verse is written in. Once I found the context of that verse, I wasn't as excited about it. If I'm just honest, it was harder. Let, let me keep reading. Let's go back to verse 4 to set this up. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Wait, I want to make sure you see something. Who sent them? Yeah. God says, I sent them. That's important. 
I sent them into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says this to them, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Listen to verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. That's the city of your enemy. That's the city that killed the people that you know. That's the city that robbed you from your culture, that has destroyed everything that you love. God says, pray for them and that they will prosper. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. Wow. You know what God says to them? You better plant some roots and get used to the circumstance that you're in because you're going to be there for a long time. You're going to be in captivity. You're going to be slaves. You're going to be away from your culture for a long time. Well, that, that doesn't sound good, right? Like, that's not fun. That doesn't make me say, man, God is good. I mean, that hurts me. Let's keep reading. Verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. It's after that that verse 11 comes. Now, Let's assume you're 20 years old. 70 years later, how old will you be? 90, right? Yeah, let's just say you've missed the prime of your life. If you're even still living, right? So when God says this to them, can we just all understand for a second? God just said the rest of your life you're going to be a slave. The rest of your life you're going to suffer. You're going to be waiting, and you're going to wait and long for a blessing in your life that will never come. If God tells you that, is he still good? See, God is clearly at work, and he clearly has a plan. But this plan that is good isn't the plan that they necessarily want. It's hard. If God makes you wait, if he never gives you the blessing that you long for, if you remain single for the rest of your life, if you never have that baby that you long for, if you never make the good money or achieve the things that you aspire to, if your lost family never comes to know the Lord, is God still good? You've got to ask yourself that question because in that question, there is a view of God that Paul says, I have learned the secret to be content in all things. And did you notice that he said in transition, don't let your prophets deceive you? <laughs> you know, there's always somebody around to tell you what you want to hear. You can always find a church. You can always find a group of people. You can always find a counselor that, man, I like that guy. 
He t- I mean, he's so encouraging. That is, you're always going to find that. You know what God said? That person's not for me. That person that says, God's going to raise up and destroy Babylon and we'll be home next year. Yeah, that didn't come from me. That guy's a liar. To let you further see this, let's go back and look at Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 38, there's an amazing story. I'm going to tell you the story, and then I'll just go back and read it, okay? Uh, Or read a small section from it. Jeremiah, Babylon is coming. Jeremiah says to the people, hey, if you want to live, by the way, he's speaking for the Lord. He says, if you want to live, surrender to Babylon. They will make you prizes of war. You'll stay alive. You'll be slaves, but you'll live. If you want to die, fight. So Jeremiah, the prophet, speaks up and says, you're going to lose. Well, the commander of the army of the Israelites is absolutely appalled. Now, what do you think? His job is to rally Israel to fight Babylon. Meanwhile, the prophet is saying, y'all are going to die. That, that doesn't help. Like, that's not, let's make it like 21st century. That's not positive thinking, right? That's not encouraging. Yo, bro, you're hurting my feelings. Like, it's, it's that kind of stuff. So watch what happens. He goes to the king and says, we need to kill Jeremiah. He's a traitor. He doesn't believe that God is big enough to save us. He doesn't believe that he can deliver us. He thinks we're all going to die. And I'm out here trying my best to rally people to fight. And the king is passive. He's a lousy leader. So, you know, there's some people that they lead by making decisions. There's some people that lead by making bad decisions. And there's some people that lead by not making the decision. So the king's like, you know, I don't know. I can't really do anything with it. Whatever, whatever you decide. He pulls like a pilot. So the commander of the army throws jeremiah into a cistern and leaves him to die until later a eunuch comes and saves him uh, from the cistern let's read it verse two thus says the lord he who stays in the city shall die by the sword by famine by pestilence but he who goes out to the chaldeans same babylon same people shall live He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, the city surely be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Now verse 4, then the official said to the king, let this man be put to death for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of the people, but their harm. You know what Jeremiah's crime was? He didn't tell people what they wanted to hear. He told them the truth. So they tried to kill him. Can you believe, listen, can you believe that God is at work when it leaves you alone? When you're the only one standing up? When it takes you against the culture and against the popular opinion of those who are around you? Can you believe then that God is at work? They pull Jeremiah out of the cistern. They take him to the king. 
And before the king, the king asked Jeremiah, what do you think is going to happen? Jeremiah goes, man, I don't want to tell you. If I tell you, you're just going to kill me. You say, I mean, think about if you could have the conversation with Jeremiah for a minute. I mean, really, you know, you'd be like, Jeremiah, you know, I thought, I thought you were God's man. I thought God speaks through you. And Jeremiah would be like, yeah, I, I thought I am too. I think I am. Why are you in the cistern? Is your God not big enough to protect you? He is. He's also big enough to put me in a cistern. This idea, this thought, so prevalent for us. We would much rather gather and hear somebody preach about grace and mercy than justice. But can I tell you, God is both the giver of justice and grace. And you will never understand grace until you understand justice. This is why the law came first. This is so important for us. Another thing I would remind you of is faithfulness and success don't always go hand in hand. Just because you do that which is honoring and faithful and pleasing to the Lord doesn't mean you will be promoted. We may continue, listen, I think we are a church that pursues the Lord with faithfulness. I've been on the inside for three years, and I've watched us make decisions. I'm part of that. And we have all kinds of competency errors. We'll mess up all kinds of stuff in efficiency, and we'll make mistakes. But can I tell you, the things that matter most, the things that are biblical, the mandated truths in Scripture, I have never been around a group of leaders that pursue that with more passion than here at Tri-Cities. You know what? We have, a, I don't know, a thousand some people now. Maybe five years from now, we have 500. You know who's not going to sit up and say, man, that wasn't a success? Me. Because I'm not ready to throw guys like Jeremiah under the bus and say those guys weren't faithful. Because the moment we begin to do that, we become like Job's friends, right? Man, there must be something wrong with you. You must have sin in your life. Jeremiah, there must be something wrong with you for you to get thrown in that cistern. What are you missing? Success and faithfulness are not always hand in hand. The next thing I want to ask is, can you believe it? Can you believe that God is at work when you don't feel it? When you don't feel it. Habakkuk chapter 3, back to Habakkuk, our closing section. Verse 16. Habakkuk has gone through these first three chapters, and he has complained. God has responded. Habakkuk has kind of came back, and then God has responded basically again. And now we have Habakkuk's basic response all right this is powerful man this is good stuff verse 16 though i want you to catch how he feels okay before we see what he does i want you to understand his emotion because oftentimes truth is not emotion sometimes we have to take our feelings and we have to direct them we have to tell ourselves how to feel because our feelings will lie to us i want you to listen to how he feels verse 16 i hear Lord, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. My body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. And my legs tremble beneath me. That's how he feels. Ever felt like that? Like just hurt. I mean, just hurt. Not just like 
the circumstances got you a little bummed out, but I mean inside you are broken and you are a mess and you may not show it, but inside you are trembling. Habakkuk says, yet, I don't care if I feel this way, yet I will quietly, watch this, peacefully wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Here's what he's saying. I will quietly wait for justice. I will quietly wait for whatever the Lord has in store within his ultimate plan because I know it will be good. I don't feel it. Right now I hurt. Right now this stinks. I tremble. Yet, yet, I will quietly wait. My trust will be in the Lord. He will be my anchor. I will not give in to my emotion. He goes on in verse 17 and he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, although I have nothing, Nothing is working. Whatever I try doesn't work. I plant it, it doesn't grow. There's no fruit. There's no, there's no quantifiable success here. I can't, although none of this stuff around me is going like I want it to, although I am not prospering within my own view, although I can't see it, yet, verse 18, another yet, listen, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Though there is nothing around me in my circumstances that seems good, I will trust in the Lord. I will praise Him. I will say joy be to Him because I believe He is big enough to be in control of all of this and I trust Him to be good all the time this is Habakkuk's conclusion but I want you to see it's not without hurt it's not without the war of the flesh it's not without the torn emotion but I want you to see that Habakkuk views God big enough to bless in the very way he longs for and he also sees him big enough to work in his very deep suffering. See, this speaks to the way we view God. I want to close um, with a couple of things. This will be a little different, but I, I want to read you um, a statement of faith. It's an old statement of faith. It's a very famous one. You can go back and look at it, but I'm just going to read you two paragraphs i could have chose anyone i mean there's a lot of like we have the baptist faith and message that all the southern baptist churches affirm to just acknowledge that we believe in the same thing i want to go back to the westminster confession of faith and i want to read you two paragraphs that speak to who god is okay so this is written you know hundreds of years ago just stay with me as you read it kind of get your heart past your feelings for a minute and be ready just kind of in your mind and in your to amen the realities of who god is 
that go beyond, listen, our sinfulness, that go beyond our self-centeredness, that go beyond our flesh. Listen to what these men write as they look through Scripture and describe who God is. Paragraph 1. There is but only one living and true God. He is infinite in being and perfection. A most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. He is unchangeable, boundless, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute working all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, listen, and also most just, and terrible in his judgment, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. That's paragraph one. Just, just for a second, I think if we got together and tried to write a paragraph like that. I, I mean, besides Jeremy Bledsoe, that would take the rest of us a long time, right? Paragraph two. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things and hath absolute sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent of his creatures. So as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain, He is most holy in all counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him do from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. That is a big God. That is a big God. You say, now, this sermon hasn't really been much about us. You've talked a lot more about God. I mean, What do I do with this? I I want you to understand it is the constant diet of deepening our understanding of who God is that gives us the foundation, theological word, gives us the sanctification to have the wisdom to navigate our life. There will be seasons of despair in your life. There will be trials and there will be difficulties. And it is so hard in those trials and in those difficulties to stand firm when you have a small view of God. 
It is through the math-like, you know, we learn math. Nobody goes to math class and like, woo, I learned math today. Nobody does that. But year over year, month over month, you learn principles that give you deeper principles. It's not exciting all the time, but it's wowing as we progress. I want you to leave with a bigger view of who God is. Because when you do, it will change your life out there Monday through Saturday. It will change how you live. It will change how you worship. It will change your worldview. And someday, it might be the strength to get you through one of the darkest seasons of your life.